What we're going to be doing right now is we're going to be taking a look at uh, really the subject matter of spiritual warfare. It's something that we started, uh, to be quite frank with you, is something that was not even planned uh, when we were started in the book of Revelation. We've been going through a series of the book of Revelation. We got to Revelation chapter 12, Revelation 13, and uh, really those two chapters sort of encapsulate this kind of cosmic struggle, cosmic battle uh, that will ultimately take place sort of from the dragon, demonic nature of Satan, and him empowering uh, some sort of world government type leader, probably what's oftentimes identified as like the Antichrist, and also empowering sort of in a final state the sense of world dominating type of religion, pagan religion, uh, probably oftentimes identified as like a false church or so, something like that. But what we're really trying to kind of clamp down on is trying to understand the reality that we do live in an atmosphere in a world where these two worlds collide there's a spiritual world in which God exists Uh, there's a demonic world that's also spiritual in that sense that exists and then the physical world in which we live in and a lot of times we find ourselves in kind of the crossfire of this where we oftentimes are affected by this demonic realm that is at work We see that very clearly in the book of Revelation where all things sort of make this kind of climactic exchange in the end where demonic activity is heightened and everything just sort of breaks out. Literally, all hell breaks loose. However, in the world in which we live in today, obviously in our lives, we encounter and experience spiritual and demonic type of warfare probably more often than we tend to give it credit. Um, We've been trying to point out all along that there is a tendency to give too much credit to certain things in the demonic realm, but there's also equally the same danger of not giving any credit to the demonic realm. So what we want to try to do, as we said, we kind of moved on into this. So if if you're wondering where we're going with this, um, we started this section, sort of mini section, about three weeks ago. Um, I did not honestly think it was going to take this long. In fact, I from the very beginning, didn't even plan on doing this. It's just for whatever reason, I feel kind of has sensed that God wanted us to go through this, to take sort of a pause from the larger exposition of the book of Revelation and focus on this larger theme of demonic spiritual type of activity. Um, I think we're on on about week three of kind of this mini-series. Rarely, if you've ever been around here very often, I normally don't do part one, part two, part three, this will end up being like a part four, part five series uh, once everything's done. And so, you know, to be honest with you, it's just one of those things where I've just really sensed uh, God's given me a, really a, all of this information several months ago. For whatever reason, it's just kind of come out all right now. I just feel like God wants us to go through this. God wants us to take a look at this. Um, and quite honest, I'm not really sure why. Maybe God knew I needed it. So um, maybe God knew that some of you guys needed it as well. So we want to take some time really looking at this. That's sort of setting the stage as to where we're going. We are in a spiritual, demonic type of a warfare. We want to be aware of the devices of the enemy. Paul the Apostle said himself, being aware of the demonic realm and being aware of demonic activity that was causing all sorts of problems and issues within his life. Paul basically said this, we don't want to be ignorant of his devices. So what we want to try to do is we also want to make certain that we are aware of the devil's means, the dragon's ways, and his devices, and his designs, and in particular his tactics, so that we don't fall prey. So we're going to be taking a look at, like we have over the past three weeks, 
sort of a series of um, things that are designed by the enemy to get us to trip. Uh, the first week we looked at the first two ways in which the dragon tries to attack us. It's through the world, it's through the flesh, and then now we've been kind of in this uh, past two weeks looking at, in particular, the devil. So the world, the flesh, and the devil are oftentimes the vehicles by which the enemy, or the medium by which the enemy uses to destroy us, to attack us, to trip us up, to cause us to sin. And when we sin, to cause us to feel guilty about that sin, so much so that we're literally just rendered useless. We're like paralyzed in God's hands. We're not doing anything for the gospel. We don't care about anything having to do with the gospel because our soul has become so stained and defiled and broken and guilt-ridden because of sin And it's all part of the dragon's design to render us useless for the kingdom. Does that all make sense? So we want to make certain that we are aware of the designs of the dragon. That's the main thing. So I'm going to pray in just a second here, but I want to say one last thing before we pray. Some of the things that we're going to be taking a look at kind of are like in a list form. We're going to be looking at several things. We'll be giving verses to several of these things. Um, what, I, what I don't want is I don't want you to be listening to these things and thinking, this is like some sort of guilt trip, you're trying to guilt us. I'm not. Not at all. Uh, the, the, the purpose for everything that I'm going to say, every list item that I'm going to be putting on there, every verse that's going to be connected to those list items, is not as another sort of check for you to look at and say, ah, I failed there, I'm a horrible person. Quite, quite the opposite. In fact, not at all, that's not my intention at all. If there's guilt there... It's probably because you're in the middle of the crossfire. It's almost like a cold front and a hot front engaging in the sky creating lightning, right? Thunder and lightning. It's that sense perhaps something's not quite right in your soul. The main purpose by which I'm going to be outlining these things is more so along the lines of looking at it and saying, I want to try to help you, help all of us to be aware of uh, pit holes, all right, pit holes in the road so that you don't inadvertently drive into those things and stumble. Yet the only unique thing about Satan's pit holes that he throws down in front of us is that they've got, they've got hands. They've got arms. So if you even get close to these things and you're not aware of them, they reach out and grab you and suck you into them and you fall down and you trip. And we want to be aware of Satan's devices so that we don't stumble, so we don't fall, but rather... Uh, sort of conversely, that we can be victorious. We can walk in light as Jesus is in a light so that we can avoid sin and walk in holiness as Christ wants us to avoid sin and walk in holiness, just like Jesus avoided sin and walked in holiness uh, so that we can be victorious, so that we can find the sense of joy that God wants us to find in Him as opposed to sinning and feeling bad and feeling guilty and being rendered useless. All this making sense? Good. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work and see what God wants to speak to us today. God, we we ask you right now that you would open our eyes. We need your help. We need your spirit and your strength to make us keenly aware of these holes all around us, these landmines that are everywhere. We don't see them. Most of the time, we're not aware of them. Uh, And yet, God, oftentimes we fall into them, we trip, we stumble, and we feel really bad. We find ourselves condemned rather than reminding ourselves of, like Romans 8, where there is no condemnation. It's because 
we have an enemy. We have an adversary who is always looking for means, always looking for ways to get us to stumble, to fall, to sin, and then cause us to feel guilty and horrible and unworthy. And then we isolate ourselves, and then we continue to remain in a place where we're not even doing anything for your kingdom. And God, you want us to be like well-watered gardens that bring forth much fruit. People enjoy that fruit. And our lives bring satisfaction and joy to other people around us. Instead, God, so oftentimes the enemy's desire, his design, is to completely rip out every bed of flowers, to completely destroy and just spray the entire garden down with Roundup and get us just ruined. So God, I pray that you'd help us to be aware of his designs, of his devices, and ultimately even more aware of the fact that Jesus is the dragon slayer. He has power and authority and might over the dragon whose main chief design is to destroy, kill, and ruin. So help us today, God, we pray. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to jump in by having you guys take a look at a picture. It has to do with two modern forms of warfare. Um, I want you to take a look at these two pictures. They're two pictures that talk about modern warfare. The one is the most obvious, right? When we think of warfare, it's what we think about. We think about tanks. It's the famous Tiananmen Square picture. We think of tanks. We think of... um, you know, artillery, we think of guns, we think of battle, we think of conflict. It's what we oftentimes think about uh, when we think about battle. But the probably most significant, most important type of battle that we really regularly fail to see as as significant, as, as important, and yet probably even more lethal, is this guy down here. It's a sniper. You don't see him. That's the whole point. You don't see him. There's a little, you can see a little gun barrel. Can you guys see it, kind of? Some of you? Okay, who doesn't see it? All right, right, you guys all see it. It's like one of those pictures you know to look at. It's got 3D pictures in it. I'm just kidding. Um, So you see down at the bottom, he's a sniper. And snipers will stay in wait for hours. I've even read stories. Well, they will track uh, their opponent down for sometimes even days. Hiding out, waiting out. Uh, staking out, not even eating, not even moving, just staying in a spot so they can observe, watch, scout out, monitor, uh, analyze every move, every spot, every location, everything about a person's life so that they can understand patterns so that once the appropriate time comes, they then will shoot. And when they shoot, their accuracy is oftentimes dead on and they get the enemy. All right. In this case, I want you to think about Satan's devices, not in terms of the blatant artillery, tanks, attacks. I want you to think in a, in a sense that the main way by which the enemy oftentimes attacks us is like a sniper. He's hidden, he's camouflaged, we don't know the enemy's there, we're not aware of him, we don't see it. We're completely oblivious to it. And then all of a sudden, in the right moment, in the right time, he shoots, fires, gets us. Accuracy is oftentimes dead on. Literally. So I want us to think about Satan's devices like that. They're intended to be stealthy. They're intended to bring about sort of a lethal attack upon our lives. And oftentimes they do. So again, we want to be aware of these devices so that we don't fall. So I'm going to jump right in. Uh, We've been going through a lot of this the past few weeks. If you've missed any of these, highly encourage you to go online, check out the the messages online. They're all free. It's calvarysill.com to kind of get back uh, to where we've been looking at. 
Uh, normally I would kind of just recap some of it. I'm not going to do that today. I just don't have a lot of time. So I want to jump right in and I want to take a look at the next line of devices which the enemy oftentimes uses to trip us up and to attack us. I looked at a handful of them last week. We've been kind of making our way through. So I'm going to jump right in where I left off last week and take a look at the next one. Next slide basically is this. Bitterness is one of the devices in which the dragon uses to attack us. Here's what I want you to see. Take a look at what Paul writes in Ephesians. He says this, chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let us each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one, of an- one from another. He says, do not be angry, or be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down your wrath, upon your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Then he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from among you, along with all malice. One of the things that hopefully you guys uh, will discover in most of these verses, and these aren't just kind of random uh, verses or ideas or topics that we're just kind of uh, throwing down, mostly all of these have some form of linkage to demonic activity or uh, Satan himself or dragon-like characteristics. For example, in this particular setting, he says this, um, don't give any opportunity to the devil. So you'll see words like devil or Uh, evil or the God of this world. So in this particular setting, he says, be angry, but don't sin. Do you know that it's possible to actually be angry, but not sin? There are certain things that we should actually be angry about. God, for example, is angry. He hates sin. God hates sin. He hates it because sin destroys. It disrupts. It ruins people's lives. We see that in our life when we see people that do things that are evil, that are bad. You read about stuff, or you hear about stuff on the news, or you see the atrocities that are going on in parts of the world, and it's evil. You should be angry. It's okay to be angry. People that have been raped, you should be angry at the fact that they were raped because somebody abused them. If some guy is a pedophile, you should be angry because those are sins that abuse and take advantage and ruin people. It's okay to be angry. But the reality is this. One of the reasons why Paul urges us, be angry but don't sin, is because we don't always see things accurately. We don't always have all the information. So even though Paul basically gives us a license, says be angry but don't sin, he also recognizes that we've got to be careful. We have to use extreme caution. Because what could happen is anger, if not guarded and if not uh, used in a way that's full of knowledge, that has truth in it that leads to the appropriate response, what can ultimately end up happening is we can carry on and do things in a way that does not bring God glory and end up becoming divisive and abusive and retributive uh, in and of itself. And that is an evil, is what Paul's saying. He said, don't give any place to the devil. Verse 27, he says, give no opportunity to the devil. Some of your translations might have different words, don't give any place. Uh, to the devil. The word that's actually used in the Greek opportunity is actually the Greek word topos, T-O-P-O-S. Uh, we get the English word topographical, you know, uh, something, it's the idea of something over, looking at like a mountain, looking at various highs and lows on a particular mountain. Um, that's the idea that he's talking about. He says, don't give any opportunity, don't give any foothold or area for the enemy to come in. Now, think about it this way. Uh, the enemy, Satan, the dragon, He's like a mountain climber, and he's looking for any type of foothold 
all right? Mountain climbers, rock climbers, they look for little footholds in crevices of rocks, little areas, little things. I got friends that, you know, love climbing rocks, and it's amazing to me what they can climb. It doesn't have to be much. It doesn't have to be a huge ledge, right? For some of us, we need like a big, massive ledge to jump on. Not for a really experienced rock climber. All he needs is like a tiny little ledge or a little crevice, stick his pinky in, and he can climb. I mean, it's absolutely amazing what some of these guys can do. The point is, is that what Paul's trying to say is the dragon, the devil, he's very skilled, doesn't need much, doesn't need much at all. All he needs is a tiny, little, maybe perhaps in your mind, insignificant foothold. And the moment he finds that foothold, he will scale you. He will climb you. He will bring you down. And he will look for these opportunities. And in the context of what Paul's saying here, is he says there's a way of having this raw emotion called anger that's just, that's righteous, that's good, that's very God-like, okay? But that anger, if not carefully watched and monitored, could actually morph into something that is not God-like. It's more dragon-like. And he describes it this way. That's why he says, let all bitterness and wrath and clamor and anger and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So he addresses this issue of bitterness. Bitterness is distinct from anger in this particular sense. Most people might think, oh, they're the same. They're actually not the same. They're distinct. Uh, God has anger, but God is not bitter. God never has bitterness. He's angry. He's angry with sin. He has wrath towards sin, but he's not bitter. It's a big difference. What ends up happening is people can become bitter. People oftentimes become bitter for numerous reasons. But here's what you need to understand about bitterness. Bitterness usually ends up happening and taking place in between relationships of people that you know. Okay? Usually bitterness takes place when, you, when there's somebody that you know, you're close to them. It might be a spouse. It might be a, you know, a teacher, it might be a pastor, it might be a Bible study leader, somebody that you've been in and have had relationship with, you've connected with them, maybe you've prayed with them, there's had some sort of intimate type of relationship with them. Somewhere along the line, um, what ends up happening is with that proximity of a relationship, there also comes a sense of you will get let down. And usually bitterness stems from one of two things. One, that person offended you, that person offended you, either uh, advertently or inadvertently, or secondly, you think that person offended you. Right, said? You think they offended you. Doesn't mean they did, but you think they offended you. You think they did something against you. And as a result of that, because of this relationship that you have with them, because they let you down, because they've not sort of been there for you in the way that you expect them to be there because they've not done for you what you've expected them to do. They let you down. You had certain expectations sort of embedded to that relationship that somehow uh, either they did let you down, again, advertently or inadvertently, or you thought they let you down. And what ends up happening is you create this opportunity, this topographical opportunity, this foothold for the dragon to scale, to come in. And bitterness is what ends up being the result. What you need to know about bitterness is that bitterness is, is, is really, I think, and quite honestly with you, it's one of those sins that Christians are like, ah, that's okay. We're Christians. God will forgive it. It's one of those sort of dismissed type of sins we don't like to talk about, we don't like to address, but to be quite frank with you, it's probably one of the most all-pervasive sins that I see in 
probably most people I ever spent time with, counseling. You know, it's, it's, it's an ironic thing to me because the church is really good at trying to point out blatant things, blatant sins like, you know, some dude sleeping with his girlfriend, whatever, like that needs to be addressed and so on and so forth. But this idea of like, like for, uh, bitterness and gluttony are like the two sins that all Christians are like, it's cool. I'll just eat whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. It doesn't matter how big I get. I'll just eat it. It's no big deal. It's like the sin that nobody cares about. The point that I would make is this. The enemy is always looking for ways to trip us up, to trap us. One of the ways in which he does this is through bitterness. Bitterness is one of the most all-pervasive footholds, traps I see most Christians falling into. I've been in ministry for almost 25 years. Almost 25 years. 16 of that has been here. All right? And one of the things that I've seen probably more so than any other part of any other people's lives that they fall into is bitterness. When I see people regularly struggling and dealing with issues like this, but rarely do people ever identify it. The interesting thing that I've noticed with bitter people is bitter people really have this sense of just feeling always justified. One of the best ways to identify bitter people is bitter people like to talk about their bitterness with other people. Bitter people love to call other people on the phone and like to rally together with other people that, may, that maybe feel like they do to talk about the person the way that they're bitter with. But again, like I said, bitterness stems from this sense of either A, being offended or thinking that someone did something that, that offended you. Most circumstances I've watched and I've been in and I've seen people that are offended or people that have offended most of the times don't even know they've offended most of the time this is the irony for me like it's incredible to me how many times I've sat down in sort of marriage counseling with two people maybe the, the wife like for example is really bitter really frustrated has absolutely no respect whatsoever towards her husband and the husband's completely oblivious She's like, well, you know, do you remember you did this to me back on July 4th, you know, 1949, you know, or whatever. And you, they remember the very date, the hour, the moment, the instant this thing sort of happened. And the guy's like, no, I don't remember any of that. You're kidding. And that's sort of the, the irony of all this is because usually the one who is offended carries this offense, but rarely carries it to the cross, They're trying to find somebody else to absorb the cost. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is basically somebody absorbing the price. You got to catch this. You got to hear this because ultimately what ends up happening, when people refuse to forgive, what ends up taking place is sort of this morphing of their soul. Uh, They become bitter people. It's kind of like Gollum, all right? Start off as Smeagol, this nice little hobbit, right? And through this lust and craving and this bitterness becomes this, like, you know, gotta have the ring, you know? <laughs> just like something takes over inside that is just otherworldly. It's ungodly. It's demonic. That's why I think the video does such a good job portraying him as, as like, first time I sat down and I watched it with my kids, my kids were like, what is that, Dad? It's freaky looking. It's the point. It's to look freaky. It's meant to be that way because he was trying to depict what ends up happening when we have these cravings and these lusts and these things that just control us. It creates sort of this monster inside that ultimately ends up coming outside. Bitterness works like this. 
And Paul's whole point is don't let a root of bitterness come. Don't give foothold. Don't give opportunity to the dragon to take over. Bitter people love, like I said earlier, to call other people, to rally together other people, to say, you know, did, did, you, did you feel the same way that I do about this particular person? They said this and this. Did you, do you feel the same way? Do you have the same anger and frustration that I have? Well, let's get together and form a club. And that's what happens, right? I mean, it's, honestly, this is what happens. I see this all the time. It is the number one besetting trap I see almost every Christian fall into. Especially the number one, aside from sexual type sins, that people fall into, especially with regard to marriages. Somewhere down the line, someone gets their feelings hurt. Rather than bringing about reconciliation or restoration, this bitterness just keeps going, keeps going, and it never releases. There's never any uh, sense of uh, releasing the debt to Christ. It just gets carried, and it's like this putrefying cancer that's deep inside the soul that just keeps killing and wounding. And bitter people oftentimes seek out other bitter people who feel the same way that they do, and they sort of kind of have this kind of collaboration amongst themselves, and they are looking for ways to spew out more venom. Bitter people can oftentimes be very critical. I've also noticed this about bitter people. It, let me put it, let me use myself as an example. If I was bitter with you, if I was bitter with you, if, if I was in a relationship with you, and you did something that you let me down, and I was frustrated with you, bitter people, in this case, me, looking at you, I would not be able to see any good in your life. I can't look at your life and rejoice of evidences of grace in your life. I can't look at your life and say, you know, God's doing great things. You know, one of the good things about them is they pray a lot, they love Jesus, they read their Bible, I love them. Bitter people can't see anything good. It's almost like having this cataract over their eye where everything is skewed, everything. I see this in marriages. I've seen this in marriages. We see the husband loves Jesus, doing his best to be a good husband, but the wife, somehow he's offended He's offended the wife, and the woman just cannot see any good whatsoever in her husband. Any good. Not even the fact that the guy works hard, brings home paycheck, pays the bills, mows the lawn, you know, does everything that he could to try to take care of her, but she can't see it because she's bitter. Want you guys to hear this. That bitterness is the stronghold of the devil. That's why Paul says don't give any occasion to this. He goes on. And he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, all of these sort of bleed out of bitterness. They bleed out of it. They come out. They ooze out of it like something nasty, something putrefying, something dead, something broken. It just kind of gushes out of it. And it ends up bringing all sorts of other problems. They're very quick to slander, very quick to, like I said, have these little groups of people that sit around and talk about that person that's offended them. And then he finishes and he says, also put away from you every, all, all malice. Malice, malice is a really strong word. And it basically implies this idea of strong, definable cursing. Let me give you an example. Malice oftentimes comes out in sort of the attitude. That let's say if, uh, you know, I did something against you, or, you know, let's, let's turn around. I'll be, the, I'll be the bad guy here. Let's say you did something against me, and, and I'm bitter with you, and let's say you broke your leg. Malice is, they deserve that. They deserve more. I wish they broke their neck and died. Malice goes that far. Malice, that's malice. Malice is the mentality of, I, I, I wish 
I wish the worst evil upon that person. And if evil falls that person or something bad happens in that person's life, malice actually rejoices over it. Let me just tell you something. This is my life. I deal with this every single week, sometimes several times throughout the day. I deal with this on a regular basis. This is, this is the ministry for me, for my wife. This has been one of the probably most difficult parts of serving the Lord, being a pastor, trying to love Jesus, at the same time trying to bring the gospel forth in a community for us. Our greatest attacks, I wish, came from Jehovah's Witnesses and people that don't love Jesus and cult members and freakish weird people that don't love Jesus at all. I wish that's where it came from. But to be quite honest with you, this is where it absolutely breaks and devastates the heart. Most of the time it comes from people who claim to love Jesus, who are just bitter. Just bitter. Paul points out bitterness is like this foothold that the dragon uses to scale us, to bring us down. Guys, be aware of these footholds in your life. Be careful of them. Don't give any opportunity, like what he's saying, for the devil to come. How do you deal with it? You do what Jesus said. You forgive. Someone's got to absorb the cost. Someone does. Unforgiveness in this person's heart is your attempt to make somebody else pay. You know that? When you're not forgiving someone, you're basically living with this big debt, and you're saying, I will make them pay. I will make them pay. Let me read this last one. James 3.6. He says, the tongue, it's a fire, a world of unrighteousness. It's set on fire by hell. It is a restless evil, deadly, full of poison. With it, we bless our Lord and our Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. This is a really searching verse because James is actually writing to Christians. Like, Christians can be that evil? (laughs) Yeah, they can. And the irony is here, we got a tongue, our mouth. We use our mouth. We come to church, we sing praises, share the gospel with other people, we read Bible verses, we quote them back. But with that same mouth, we're making phone calls, we're writing to people, calling them up, we're talking, and we've got little circles of people that we're all bitter with that one person, and we're saying, oh, did you hear what they did? I can't believe that person's a jerk. I wish they died. I wish they get cancer and just die in a slow death. I want something really bad to happen to them. That's his point. These are footholds. Curse is very similar to the idea of malice. A curse is really sort of what comes out of malice. Um, we curse people. It's the way of basically saying, I just wish the most profound evil fell upon that person. Have you ever felt that way? Have you? I have. Absolutely I have. It's horrible. It's a horrible place to be. I'm always having to wrestle with this in my heart because I honestly, to be quite frank with you, I find there are moments where I, I sometimes my wife and I share and I was like, what do we do? I mean, what do we do? Do we, do we just get bitter and angry and do the same thing I feel like people sometimes do with us? Or what do we do? What's the road? What's the path we're going to take? How are we going to navigate through this and deal with this Because quite honest with you, if you live with the mentality of saying, I'm going to make them pay, they'll never pay you back. They can't. Because quite frankly, most of the time, A, they don't even know they owe you something because they don't even know they did anything against you. And two, even if they did, nothing they do can can make it right because of bitterness. Something else has to happen. You got to go to the cross. You got to see what Jesus did. These are footholds, like I said. 
The next foothold that I want you to notice, the next tactic I want you to notice that the devil uses, the next slide, is he uses jealousy and selfish ambition. Here's what he says, James 3 verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast. Be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, sensual, or uh, unspiritual, and then demonic. So he actually uses this phrase, it's demonic. Bitterness, selfish ambition, jealousy, it's demonic. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice, and the wisdom that is above is, first of all, pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, uh, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere. His whole point is this, is that there are these occasions where people can have great jealousy. They just are angry with you because they have something that you don't have or that they don't have. They look at your life. They look at the fact that maybe you got kids or you got a bride or you got a wife or, or a husband or you got a nice house or, you know, you got something that they don't have and they're angry with you. They're frustrated with you and they become bitter. And that oftentimes, like he says in James, to all sorts of evil, wicked type things that really has its source in hell. It's demonic is his whole point. So again, being aware of jealousy, that sense of just strong passion to want something that somebody else has, uh, or selfish ambition. Take a look at the next tactic. The next tactic is drunkenness. Here's what he says. You can just read the verse, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. For at one time you were in darkness, and now you're in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The point that Paul is trying to write and trying to make, it's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, you know, the, the reality is that for us, we live in a culture where there's, there's a lot of other things for us to kind of clamp down on and look at. But the point that he's trying to make, I think, is that for one, Satan's a partier. You know that Satan likes a party? You know that? He loves to get people to think that the way to find life is by just taking drugs, getting drunk, partying, doing things. But the reality is, is he, again, like I said the very first week, is that his tactic is to show the bait, but hide the hook, to conceal the hook. Doesn't show us the hook, but he gives us the bait. All we see is the bait. The bait looks good. We want it. We eat it. As soon as it goes in, we have a hook inside of us. The point of the matter is, is that we have this tendency, we live in this culture that basically tells us the way to real happiness, the way to real joy is to just overindulge, to keep drinking, to keep getting yourself into a place where you're just completely drunk. But what ends up happening is really the rest of the story never gets unfolded. It's when people are drunk that they end up doing bad things. That's why a lot of times rapes happen when people are drunk. You know, that's why people, you know, drink and drive and end up killing somebody. The point of the matter is, is drunkenness usually, usually leads to deficit. Does that make sense? At some point, it leads to taking away something, taking away life. God is a life giver, not a life taker. God is a life giver. And what ends up happening is the enemy uses devices designed to cause us to bite it. And once we bite it, the hook's there. And now we're trapped. Now we are living in a place where life is being taken away or we will end up taking away life from somebody else. Maybe not just so much physically, but again, if you are a dude, you get drunk over spring break because it's spring break right now and all the students are gone. If you get drunk, say for example, and you end up raping someone, you will take life away from somebody else. 
that will ruin and destroy somebody else's life in which God loves and is designed in his image so that they could have life in Jesus through the Son. And his whole point is that the good alternative, rather than walking in darkness, which is what drunkenness is, walk in the light. Instead of getting drunk, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The devil, demonic activity, wants to keep us in a place where we're not dependent upon God, where we're dependent upon these other devices, upon these baits that the enemy oftentimes puts in front of us to indulge ourselves in. Little do we know, once we indulge, the hook sinks in deep and we're caught. So drunkenness is, again, another one of the tactics that the dragon uses. Take a look at the next one. Idleness, gossip, and busybody. It's an interesting one. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 13 says this. Some women learn to be idlers. Okay, Paul's writing to Timothy for one. I think he's probably talking about maybe some guys too. But obviously in the church that Timothy was pastoring, there were probably women that were sort of, you know, spending a little bit too much time playing Farmville on the internet. And so Paul's like, we got to deal with this, all right? This is just not good. The dudes are always playing with mafia wars. And this is a bad deal. So his, here's Paul's point. Yeah. Some of you are convicted right now. Anyways, uh, some women learn to be idlers. They go about from house to house, idlers, gossips, busybodies, saying what they should not. He says in verse 14, give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. This is a serious issue apparently to Paul. Because his point is that it would seem as if the dragon, one of his devices, is to get us too busy in other people's lives. Busybody. We just got, we, we are too wrapped up. You know, again, the enemy is so good at this. I've seen the enemy do this, he, especially with women. Especially with women. Uh, you know, one of the reasons why, and I, and I say this with, with, you know, with, just, with, just, with just honesty, I think, trying to be recognizing the text. Paul talks about them being the weaker vessel. Not that, in a sense, they are anything less, but I think women have this tendency, a propensity to be more prone towards spiritual deception. I think because they are more emotionally connected than men can be. And they are oftentimes more easily convinced on an emotional level than men can be. Okay? So I think the reality is that sometimes through deception, women can think, you know, we're just having prayer requests. We're just talking about women. No, you're gossiping. It's gossip. It's not prayer requests. Nobody really cares about getting on their faces and praying to God and asking God for mercy in other people's lives. But it's just, it's gossip. You're gossiping. And Paul's point is that, look, there are those that are busybodies. They spend way too much time. They don't have, they've got, they don't have any time because they're busy, always busy in other people's business. And then there's idlers, meaning they, they don't, they don't, their time, they've got way too much time. So rather than using their time effectively, uh, moving forward the gospel and helping other people, they spend a lot of time, you know, doing things that just have no meaning whatsoever to them, wasting time, and they said there's gossips. And the point that I think Paul is basically saying is that what you need to see is that there's a very real demonic realm that I think is what Paul's trying to say that's at work trying to, A, keep us way too busy with life, where we don't have any time to pray, we don't have any time to read the Bible, we don't have any time to share gospel with other people, we don't have any time to help serve people in the church, help out other people that might be going through difficult times in life, because we're just too busy. We're just too dang busy. And there are those who are just like, not busy enough. I mean, look, building up your World of Warcraft score is not a good way of using your time for the gospel, all right? 
What I'm trying to say is this, is that there are people that have way too much time on their hands. And these are means by which the dragon oftentimes can use to cause us to stumble and fall, to trap us. These are devices which the dragon uses. That's why Paul says some have actually strayed after Satan. Some have already fallen. I don't think he's saying they all became demonic. I think he's basically saying some of these people, they've, they've, they've bought the bait. They've eaten the bait. And the hook's taken them other places that are not God's best. Take a look at the next one. Lies. John 8, 44 says this. And you are of your father, the devil. He's talking to the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders. And he says, for you do your father's desires. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he's a liar and he's the father of lies. Jesus' whole point to these guys is that you guys are wrapped up in lies. You don't see the truth. Now here's the irony in this. These guys were masters on the truth. This is the irony. They knew the Torah. They understood the scriptures. They memorized. In fact, most of these guys were so knowledgeable of the Torah and the scriptures, they could put all of us to shame. I mean, in some sort of like a Bible gunslinging type showdown, these guys would win every time. They were smart. They understood the scriptures. They were scholars, theologians. But the reality is, is that these guys did not understand the truth. That ought to uh, shock us a bit. Because I think it's easy for us sometimes to just think, you know, I've memorized a bunch of scriptures. I got certain arguments down. Yeah, you're right. And you can be just as blind as the scribes and Pharisees were. You can be just as blind as they were. Lying, living in lies, believing lies are demonic attempts to trap us. You, you, you got to catch this image, this picture in your mind. These are demonic attempts to cause us to trip and to stumble because the dragon hates God's people. Take a look at Acts chapter 5. It's kind of this story where this, in the early church, this guy comes walking up to Peter and he says, you know, we're going to donate a lot of money to the church and we're going to help out. And Peter's like, great, how much? He's like, uh, this amount. And, but Peter ends up knowing that that's not the amount that he actually gave. So basically he was lying. He's lying to sort of emphasize or try to build himself up, trying to impress other people. And that's, I think, what was going on. He's trying to impress other people. And what ends up happening is Peter kind of calls him the rug. He's like, look, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? So again, he sort of brings about this reality that lying is something that's not godlike. It's dragon-like. Lying. Some people lie so much, they just sort of live in this reality of lying. Lying becomes their truth. It's the world in which they live in. They're so adept, so good. It's just the regular common thing. They become so adept at just sort of hiding these lies. Let me give me an example. Um, I remember talking to a guy a few years ago. He's actually in ministry, and it was a really interesting thing. Do you, do you know that a, a lies are oftentimes things that even if you believed them and it's not true, it can still affect you? This guy that I was talking to a while back, he asked for prayer. Um, fortunately, God already took care of everything. It's a great turnout. God did a great thing in his life. But basically what was going on was his wife had believed that he was having an affair on him. And I remember just asking him, I'm like, are you? Just point blank, are you? He's like, no. This is so bizarre. He's all, no, not at all. I'm talking to her. I'm like, has this happened? She's all, no. And, but in her mind, she's thinking that this is what's going on. So the enemy is lying to her, trying to get her to believe a non-truth and because of this non-truth in her mind, it affected their marriage. It affected their relationship. It affected the way that she saw things, the way that she saw him. 
that these lies can oftentimes cripple us. And you need to understand the source of these lies is not God. It's demonic. It's another tactic by which the dragon sets up. Take a look at the next one. Idolatry. Idolatry is another one. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 14 says this. My beloved, flee from idolatry so that the pagans, they sacrifice uh, what they offered. They, what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the, cu- and the table of demons. Take a look at the next verse, 1 John chapter 5. Just jump down and take a look at verse 21. His point is this. Little children, keep yourself from idols. That there is a tendency and a propensity in the hearts of even Christians to create idols and to bend down to these idols and worship them. And the reality is this. We are all prone towards idolatry. And what Paul wants us to understand is that idolatry is not just some sort of like innocuous type of deal that you do. His point is that there's demonic activity at work behind these idols with the intention of blinding us. With the intention of getting us to become cold and sterile, just like the idols are cold and sterile. Not like God, who is alive and fruitful and life-giving. Do you understand? It's, the, it's, it's Satan's attempt to do everything he can to work against us, to get us to be living in a way that's completely opposite of God. I wanted to just read something to you. I'm going to read it up on the next screen. Take a look at what it says. It's actually written by Martin Luther. And I think it's uh, just a, a great insight here. Here's what he says. Many one thinks that he has God in everything in abundance. When he has money, possessions, he trusts in them. He boasts of them with such assurance as to care for no one. Mammon by name, that is money and possessions, on which he sets all of his heart, in which he also... Uh, the most common idol, which is also the most common idol on earth. He who has money and possession feels secure and is joyful and undismayed as though he were sitting in the midst of paradise. I love this picture that Luther points out. He's like, the, the interesting thing that I've observed is that when people have a lot of money, you know, they're sipping the pina colada, they're hanging out, everything's great. They got a little, you know, umbrella over their house and everything's wonderful. The sun's shining. They got a nice little pool outside. Everything's wonderful. Everything is right there at their fingertips. They, it's almost, it creates this sort of illusion that, hey, I'm in paradise. I mean, this is heaven. I'm in heaven. And his whole point is that all of the trust that that person has in that moment, in their heaven, in their paradise, is fixed on the elements that create that illusion. Does that make sense? The sense of security, sense of comfort, sense of hope, sense of heaven. And what he's trying to say is that those are good emotions and good affections that are actually and were designed and created by God for God. Does that make sense? Not for other things. And his whole point is to say that this is an idol. He goes on to define this. So too much, or so too, sorry, whoever trusts and boasts that he possesses great skill, wisdom, power, favor, friendship, honor, also has a God. But it's not the only true God. This appears and again, this appears again when you notice how presumptuous, secure, and proud people are because of such possessions and how despondent they become when they have no longer, when they are there no longer or exist uh, or are withdrawn. Therefore, to have a God is to have something in which the heart entirely trusts. It's basically saying one of the best ways to know if you have any idols in your life 
is to ask, to try to understand or think through this, if that particular thing that you have great passion for, great love for, great affection for, if that was removed from your life, where would you be? If it's a good thing, you'd be sad, right? If it's like kids, you love your kids, good, you should love your kids. It's a good thing. It's good to love your kids. If you have a wife, you would be sad. You'd be bummed, and that affection, that emotion is completely warranted. But if something was taken away that you're hoping in and trusting in, one of the best and surest ways to identify if it's an idol is that if it was taken away, you'd be despondent. There's a big difference between being sad and being despondent. His point is that things that are idols in our lives, if it was taken away, we become despondent. He finishes this section. He says, thus it is with all idolatry, for it consists not merely of erecting an image and worshiping it, but rather in the heart, which stands staring at something else and seeks help and consolation from creatures, saints, or devils, and not from God. I love this little last line, who's actually willing to help. The point that he's making is this, is that God's a really gracious God. He's like a dad, is what Jesus said. He's like a father. He really, truly wants to help us. But we have these propensities to bend our knee to other things and to give affection, to give the sense of comfort that we have to these other things rather than Christ. And Paul's point is that this idolatry is actually very demonic. And it's very life-taking rather than life giving. Last one is this. He deals with uh, spiritual blindness. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says this, in their case, the God of the world, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. His point is this, is that people who are still in this world who just don't see the beauty of Christ are in blindness. That's his point. In Satan, there's something very demonic that has blinded their eyes. What I want to make in terms for you to think about, when we talk about salvation, in the New Testament, theologically, when we talk about salvation, we're not talking about asserting to certain logical, cerebral, mental truths. You've got to catch this. The westernized mind says to be saved is you just... Uh, you know, you just admit to confessing these four things or whatever. The point that Jesus is making is that true spiritual life comes not by just affirming certain truths. I mean, it's part of that, but definitely it's more so what ends up happening is God opens our eyes whereby we see. So let me give you an example. I love to kind of think of it this way. If you went to a big buffet line, I'm not a huge fan of big buffet lines, but sometimes I like them, especially the ones that have lobster. Those are my favorite. Um, big buffet line, and I never go to those, to be quite honest with you, except for when I'm in Israel, and then, yeah. Anyways, the point that I would make is this. Think of going to a big buffet line, huge buffet line, lots of food everywhere, the most amazing desserts you can imagine, but one problem. You're super hungry, but the problem is you don't have any taste buds. Everything tastes the same. Everything tastes the same. There's no enjoyment that's going to be derived from eating. No pleasure that can be had from eating. No matter how much you eat, you will never, ever be satisfied. Salvation is Christ taking our eyes that were blind to his beauty, his glory, and his greatness, and opening them. And now we see his beauty, his glory, and his greatness. 
Whereas before, we didn't care about Jesus, we didn't love Jesus, we didn't see him as valuable. Now, the one who's had their eyes open, the way Jesus describes, who's been born again, it's like he's got a brand new life. Yet in this new life, this person now who loves Jesus, loves Jesus, sees the value and the beauty of Jesus more than anything that he would be willing to let go of anything. House, family, home, career, anything. Just to have the prize that's called Jesus. That's what salvation is. People that don't love Jesus, it's because somehow their eyes have not been quite opened yet. You can talk to them about Bible verses. And the interesting, ironic paradox that God does is he uses the word of God speaking forth in their lives to begin to open those eyes, to show them the light of the glory of Christ. This is why we so much stand and believe and trust in the infallibility of the scriptures. We love God's word because this is the means by which God uses to open eyes. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We love God's word because God's word gives us this glimpse. It allows us to see Christ in a way in which Christ is to be seen. And when we see Christ through the glory of the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the grace of our God, our eyes are open and we fall in love with a great God. That's what salvation is. We gotta be really careful because what can oftentimes happen, Christians can be all, it's us and them. We hold on to certain theological truths and principles and they don't, we're better than them. Now, a Christian is someone who's had their eyes open and they have nothing in which to boast on. That's why Paul says, there's nothing in which to boast in except the cross of Christ. I can't, I can't glory in the fact that I see something that somebody else doesn't see. Because that was me. I was blind. I couldn't see. I was at the buffet line. I was hungry. Really hungry. And I was trying to eat as much as I could. But none of it was ever satisfying me until one moment, at one instant, in one circumstance, God miraculously gave me taste buds. And now... The whole new world has been opened up to me in the light of Christ. To see him was all glorious. That's what salvation is. If you're a Christian here today, that's what God's done for you. You were once blind. And the godless world has blinded you. God miraculously, mercifully, lovingly, full of grace, removed blinders from your eyes. The result, the response... Shouldn't be judgment and criticalness of anybody else, but rather humility and awe and worship and praise. We just want to sit at Jesus' feet and love him and thank him because we were once blind, now we see. That's the gospel, guys. I'm done. We're going to pray. I hope you guys are aware of these devices of the enemy. I hope you're aware of them because every device is set up with the intention to cause us to trip and when we trip we feel condemned and when we feel condemned we don't want to run to our glorious savior we have mud in our eyes we can't see him he's obscured from us we feel condemned we feel accused we find ourselves rendered inoperable we're not moving we're not doing anything we're not worshiping, we're not loving, we're not confessing our sin, we're not sharing the gospel, we're not doing all these things. These are, and it's not that we've we got to do these because these are like the Christian duties. These are natural responses to the glory and grace of the cross of Christ. We're going to respond right now. We're going to sing to Jesus. 
sing songs to him. We're going to give our tithes and our offerings. If you're one of our guests here, please don't feel any obligation to give. It's a way for us who call this our church to give joyfully, lovingly, happily back to Christ, back to God, because God's a, God's a cheerful giver. We want to be cheerful givers. We're going to sing. Uh, we'll partake of communion. We have communion in the back. If you're not a Christian, please won't, don't partake of that. If you want to become a Christian, I mean, if, if you sense an overwhelming realization of your sin and your offense before God, it's probably because God's doing a work in your life. My exhortation, commitment, or encouragement to you would be to trust, trust Christ, to cast your sin upon God. Ask him to forgive you, to wash you, to open your eyes, to help him to see the beauty of Christ. And partake of communion, part of the family. We're going to pray, we'll sing, we'll give, partake communion, confess our sin. Be aware of his devices. Jesus, help us to move from a sense of ignorance to awareness that our enemy is like a sniper crouching in the grass. He's got his crosshairs on some, even completely shooting, even right now maybe, some. God, I pray right now by grace that you would help us to be aware. By grace, help us to see the beauty of Christ. By grace, help us to see Jesus as the dragon slayer. And God, as your people, help us to run quickly, joyfully, happily in the arms of our Father, our God, who loves us, who wants us to walk in a sense of, of, of honor, of life, that we would be life-giving people, like, like, a, like a garden that gives life to people that come into our lives. Our adversary is great, but our God is even greater. So God, help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus.